Today's readings are Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9, and Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. They can be found on pages 652 and 941 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's Word, the reading from Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The reading from Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, we come into a room on Easter morning from all kinds of different places and experiences. Whether we've got... Um, we're revisiting something that used to seem very real to us, but now it's gone cold. Or whether we're coming with joy as prayers have been answered, and we're in a new chapter of life that seems promising and fruitful, and we have anticipation. Or whether we come with just raw struggle, unexpected difficulty, pain, trouble in our life, and we just, um, we honestly might not know if your healing work is big enough or strong enough or powerful enough to penetrate what we bring to the table this morning. And from all these places, the truth is we're more of a mess than we care to admit to one another. We might come in in our Easter best this morning, our Sunday best, but we're covering up what's really there. And we learn from the pages of this big story, the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus, the story of the empty tomb, that you are a God who moves towards broken 
lives. And so that the, your story is that we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. More broken than we want people to know, but more loved and accepted even as we're broken through your grace as you entered in to the brokenness on the cross and conquered through the tomb when it was empty. So with that resurrection anticipation and possibility, we ask that your grace speak to us now as we listen to your words, as we listen to the Easter story. Join us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have only been punched in the face one time in my entire life, and I deserved it. (laughs) Hey, enough, enough, enough enough of that home stuff. No, uh, the kid on my Little League team who I had been teasing, um, it turns out when he wanted to fight after a practice, and I thought that sounded fine, I was bigger than him, I didn't know anything about fighting, like really fighting. Um, But it turns out he was being trained by his dad in the garage in case he ever got bullied um, (laughs) to pulverize someone just like me. And so my little shove turned into something where all of a sudden I didn't know how, I didn't know why, but I was on the ground. I I mean, it's not like those of you who've just seen all those movies. When I was growing up, there's a lot of fist fighting movies and shows. Um, It's not like that. It's not just you bounce back and you throw another one and then you get hit. I mean, it's like, boom. I think I was out for a couple seconds and I kind of came too. I think he even helped me up. (laughs) And, uh, and, but there, I think he was also a little nervous that I might come up and try to get back at him. The thought never even crossed my mind. I wanted to get out of there. I didn't want any chance that that would happen to me ever again in my life. Um, I went from kind of thinking this was a cool new thing that I was trying to immediately being just bewildered and disoriented and wanting out of there, like for good. This is a story where we, the characters on, on this version of the Easter story, of the empty tomb story, and there's four. There's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is one where it ends still in bewilderment, disorientation, confusion. And it's good to remember a historical note that the, even the gospel stories are not just these kind of bare, neutral accounts of Jesus. They are accounts of the his, his, historical actions of Jesus, but they're actually written with a purpose to a people in a situation. And the gospel of Mark particularly has that feel that it's being written to this early church community that's struggling under the weight of persecution. In a sense, they're getting punched in the face and getting beaten into the ground because of what they believe. And so here we have a resurrection story that doesn't even have the risen Jesus in it. Did you notice that? As if to say to this church, struggling church, that probably feels like, is Jesus even still around? Was this all a sham because we feel like Jesus' presence isn't strong enough to deal with the trouble that's coming at us. It's just to say, look at, this, look at this account of these people encountering the news of the resurrection and resonating with their bewilderment, them not even at first seeing Jesus or knowing what it meant. And even, I mean, the real kicker is, this gospel and this story ends with the words, they were afraid. That's how the whole story ends. Doesn't that seem inappropriate to you? 
In fact, early in the church's history, that is how people felt. And so there are these other endings that were kind of added on, you know, nicer endings, more appropriate endings to how the story of Jesus should be. And you notice, even if you looked at the version in front of you or by the seats, that it tacks on in parentheses. You know, here's an ending that was, seems to have been added on later because it's in less um, legitimate and less ancient historical manuscript of the Greek text. The earliest ones don't have anything beyond that word afraid. So what if there's something there to listen to? What if there's a way to talk about resurrection hope that allows the space for us to be real about what's getting in the way of being hopeful? What if to become a Christian is not some kind of promise that trouble is going to vanish? But what if it's an invitation for your trouble to get uncovered, for your trouble to get known, for your trouble to get addressed? What if what happened a week and a half ago in the group I lead called Dive, when a couple of people, the first ones, the guinea pigs for this session of Dive, shared their story with the group? What if what's going on there as the real trouble of our lives gets opened up in the presence of others. What if what's happening there is empowered by the resurrection itself? That's what we want to look at today as we look at a story where a resurrection story where trouble is actually more present than the risen Jesus. And we're going to see how the resurrection, we're going to look at it two ways. That it gives you a framework for your trouble, and that it gives you a direction through your trouble. So let's look at how it gives you a framework for your trouble. How do you understand trouble? How do you explain it, trouble in your life? Do you kind of freak out, you know, like I do so often, and say, what? What is this? Why is this here? This shouldn't be here. Why is there this trouble? There's an ancient Buddhist story where a woman uh, loses her only child, her only very small child dies, and she brings this body of her favorite only child, it's the center of her life, and she brings it to the Buddha. Bless you. And she says to the Buddha, she says, is there anything you can do? My only child, my love has died. Is there anything you can do to bring him back? And the Buddha says, yes. What I need you to do is to go up back to your village and go to all your neighbors and collect mustard seeds it's called the mustard the parable of the mustard seeds collect mustard seeds from all the neighbors but they have to come from households that haven't yet been touched by death so she of course is she's excited at first she goes out and thinks there's a way this is going to work and she goes to collect mustard seeds and of course she finds that every household is totally willing to give her their mustard seeds but also every house has been touched by death so she goes back to the buddha having learned this important lesson of the kind of the permanence and the dependability of death, the ultimate trouble, right? Well, how do you frame, how do you frame it? How do you frame what seems like it's everywhere? The Christian framework looks at trouble and says pain, death, alienation, all of it, all of the trouble in this world is like an intruder 
onto God's good design. It's an invasion. It's a virus. It's pollution. Good design has been polluted. And this, the framework goes like this in terms of what you learn about God through this story is that the designer is troubled by this invasion of trouble. And so he dives into the heart of the pollution to do battle with it. And so we learn that, that when those words get declared in the story, he has risen. What that means is Jesus is no longer just a good teacher. If you really grapple with and you say he, he rose from the dead, then he is the son of God. And then, then you look back at his death and you say, if he could beat death, why didn't he beat it a few days earlier? Why did he go to it? He was doing battle with trouble. He was doing battle with death. And so when these words get announced to these three women in Mark chapter 16, he has risen. It's the beginning of a new framework. Building up at ground zero from the ground up a new framework of how to understand trouble. So that the Christian faith doesn't come to you because of this framework. It doesn't come to you and give you a burdensome list of rules that will secure for you a trouble-free life. But what it does give you is a God who is troubled by trouble and has entered in and done something about it. That's why it becomes like a first order of business in the Christian faith to determine and look hard at the resurrection. Did it actually happen? Or are we just dealing with metaphor? Like so many will say. Nice story, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. Hope springs eternal. It's about the metaphor, not that it really happened. No, as soon as you do that, you lose the framework of there is actually a God who actually enters into the trouble. It means that your trouble, you are not left alone in it. God even sees what maybe feels like an eternity of trouble in your own life. Eventually, he will deal with that because he tenaciously is troubled by trouble and enters in. He can't help it. So you and I have a God who's troubled by trouble and he won't leave you alone in it. In fact, he's moving out ahead of us into it. That's the second thing that we're given a direction through the trouble. Verse 7 becomes so crucial in this. Go, says the angel to the women. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see, there you will see him, just as I told you, or just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And what we see here, if I just tease it out in, in three little parts, is that there's reinstated failures, or let's put it this way, the direction of this movement through trouble is led by reinstated failures going in the direction of Jesus together. Reinstated failures towards Jesus together. One of the most, so one of the most important, important things you need to see this morning and that probably will resonate with some of you the most is that what we have here is reinstated failures. As you look at, verse, um, as you look at that verse uh, 7, what does the angel say? Does the angel say, but go and tell those traitors and deserters that I'm headed for them in Galilee. 
<laughs> no. Tell his disciples, and Peter, you know Peter, that public denial three times, oof. I don't think it's just kind of a quaint coincidence that the, the disciples are all deserters and failures in this moment, in the moment when Jesus comes and accomplishes his act of forgiveness. Oh, isn't that coincidental? He even has to forgive those. No, I think it's intentional and central that the first generation of the Christian church, of the movement that we're a part of, is led entirely, 100% of that first crop of leaders were reinstated failures. Their devotion was shown to be weak. They failed. They dropped the ball in Jesus' most important hour of need. And you can see that they're named as still as followers. And even in Peter is held up. I need Peter to know that I'm thinking of him. Reinstated failures. What kind of tone does that set for what this is about, what this community is about? When we had our first worship service seven and a half years ago, the message was that this thing is a place for broken people. And that's exactly what this is getting at. The leaders themselves aren't even really ready to lead until they realize how broken they are and that they have been reinstated on a mission to go. And that's the second part, is that going towards Jesus, that's the direction. There is a movement. There is a direction. What do these three women learn? They learn that he's out in front. In any sense that they were going to linger around the tomb too long is completely cut off in their scent. Before they can even sit around in their grief for two minutes, they're sent off on the move. There's a great picture in C.S. Lewis's last book of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. There's this picture of this community of dwarfs. And they've been deceived by the phony king, uh, pretending to serve this Aslan who only turns out to be a donkey dressed up in a, a really kind of shoddy... Um, costume that the only reason they pull it off is because the donkey's in the dark when it happens. He's supposed to look like the lion, Aslan. Well, it's all turned up and shown to be a farce. And when it's declared to these dwarves that their community is free and King Tyrion comes and declares and shows that it was a deception and that they're free and now let's all kind of join up together in the right direction for all those who had been deceived and tricked by this false leader who is now on the run, they scoff at joining the party that has freed them. And in fact, what the picture is that, that they're convinced of deception and betrayal and trouble so much that it dominates their whole view of things. And eventually it comes out as this summary. The dwarves say, the dwarves are for the dwarves. And in the next battle, they're shooting at both arrows at both sides. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Finally, there's this hilarious scene after the last battle where the 12 dwarves have gone through this door that looks like a door into a small, dirty animal stable. But when they walk through, and others go through it as well, when they get through, they find themselves in this new land, this glorious world where everything is wonderful. Everything is amazing. There's, uh, the sun is out. They're in an open field, and there's trees with the best fruit you could ever eat. But... 
as others are out tasting the fruit, the dwarves are hunched up. These, these 12 dwarves who have walked through the door, door, they are seated in a circle with their eyes closed, convinced that they're still in this cramped, dark, stinky stable. And no matter what anybody does, they lay food all out in front of them, the best wine, they put a goblet in everyone's hand, and nothing changes their perspective. They're just fixated. All they can see is this framework that allows darkness, betrayal, and trouble. And it's exactly this kind of huddling around the tomb that Jesus, uh, that the angel doesn't allow for these three women in the story. Trouble is real in our lives, but the first fruits of new life, of the solution to trouble, have been tasted. Jesus is risen. Go! The resurrection creates people on the move, people on the go, with their risen Savior and Lord out in front, on the move, on the go, in action. That's what, you know, it said that Jesus is on his way to Galilee. Galilee in the book of Mark is the place where all the stuff happens, all the action is, all the kingdom of God sermons that Jesus had and all the driving out of demons. We're going back into the action. Go, and he's out ahead of you. That's the message to us amidst our trouble. My favorite Easter theologian, N.T. Wright, paints this picture of the church in that kind of mode. He says, One of the things I have enjoyed most about being a bishop is watching ordinary Christians going straight from worshiping Jesus in the church to making a radical difference in the material lives of people down the street by running playgroups for children of single working moms, by organizing credit unions to help people at the bottom of the financial ladder find their way to responsible solvency, by campaigning for better housing against dangerous roads, four drug rehab centers, four wise laws relating to alcohol, four decent library and sporting facilities, for a thousand other things in which God's sovereign rule extends to hard, concrete reality. Creates people on the move. And in the very last quick point is that, just very simply, a simple observation about how Mark tells all his stories in the gospel, is that going in resurrection hope is going together not alone. These three women, they leave with resurrection news. They're still afraid. I don't, I don't picture them as smiling, put, plastering a smile, a nice churchy smile on their face as they leave. They're afraid. But they're going. They're on the move. And they're together. They're together. They're not alone. Which I think is necessary because in another place in Scripture, actually a well-known place because it's the, the most used Scripture text for weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, there's this one little phrase, we see through a glass darkly. We see through a glass darkly. That's often how it feels, and that's why we need each other. That's why we need to enter in and be real and bring some light to lessen someone else's darkness. The question is, uh, will you push yourself to move into this community in such a way that it's a place where real, human, 
messy exchanges can occur between you and others. And you can walk alongside others. Where your failures and your darkness can be known. Where we can remind each other what resurrection looks and feels like and sounds like. Because we need it. Because it's, dark, because it's darkness a lot of the time. Because we don't feel it a lot of the time. I'll close with one last glimpse of this from, again, N.T. Wright. He says in his book, Surprised by Hope, our present experience, even our present Christian experience, is incomplete. But in Christ, we have heard the complete tune. We know now what it sounds like and that we shall one day sing it in tune with Him. Our present experience, with all its incompleteness, is meant to point us to the fact that we will one day wake up and rise from sleep. Let's pray. God of grace, as a child here at City Life said recently when seeing something disturbing out on the street, Daddy, it didn't work. Jesus' death on the cross didn't work. People are homeless. There's trouble. Trouble comes right into our living room. It didn't work. That's a a deep theological observation and a cry of the Christian community since the beginning. Did it work? Sometimes we feel like, where are you? Sometimes it rains on Easter Sunday. And just like April showers, everybody says, April showers bring May flowers. That's how it works with you. You are at work. You have gone out in front of us. Will you please show us? Will you please lift our vision to the new creation that you are already making? You are already remaking things. You are already working and you're waiting for us to be on the move with you, to look forward to your work. Lift our eyes. Give us eyes to see it, that we may join up and be a part of this new life even amidst our trouble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.